This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. Welcome, welcome back, everybody, to the Decibel Geek Podcast. I'm Chris Sinzak, along here with Aaron Camaro, my co-host. I'm excited. Are you? I'm really excited. Your nipples are hard. Um, really hard. <laughs> so... Today we've got a <laughs> we've got a great guest today, someone that me and Aaron both look up to quite a bit, Big and time. Um, and you'll hear our brown nosing during the interview, I'm sure, but we don't it's, care. It's well deserved. We are uh, we're interviewing uh, that metal show host Eddie Trunk. Love that guy. Who is uh, mostly well known for that metal show, but also known very well for uh, his Friday night rock show and also Saturday night rock show in the New York area. We didn't just want to talk about that metal show and the, and the stuff that he's got going on now. We wanted to go back in time when he was paying some dues and to give you an idea of where he came from. Because a lot of people just say, oh, it's just the guy from uh, the VH1 show. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize how much, you know, as, as far as, you know, helping metal get a good name and showing the good side of, of heavy metal and hard rock instead of making us all look like grease bag, you know, long-haired rock and roll derelicts, you know, that there's actually some good, you know, quality, you know, proponents to hard rock and heavy metal. And, you know, just to, you know, fly the flag and fly it high, you know, and, and amen to that. And Eddie Trunk is awesome for doing that. He's done a lot for us. Yeah, and he's, he, you're going to hear a lot of stuff about his history and some great things that he's done over the years and some, some cool uh, experience he's had with other rock stars. We're also going to get into a, a, a meeting that the first time he met Peter Chris when he was just a kid, he was basically like 19 years old, just starting out in radio and, um, you'll hear his memories of that and you, you know, memories of his time with Ace and uh, we get, we went pretty heavy into this thing with Ace. I'm excited. Let's so, yeah. get to it. Yeah. I can't wait no more. To most hard rock and heavy metal fans, Eddie Trunk needs no introduction, but for our listeners that inhabit the underside of a rock, we'll do it anyway. Growing up in New Jersey in the 1970s and early 1980s, Eddie Trunk fell in love with rock and roll with his discovery of the Raspberries which led into a full-on love affair with such bands as Kiss, Black Sabbath, and UFO, among others. After a stint writing record reviews for his high school paper, Eddie was introduced to the world of radio when a local college station started a summer program that would teach students the basics of how to work in the industry. While the program was short-lived, it was enough to pique Eddie's interest in a future in radio. While working a job at a local record store after high school, Trunk would recommend bands to the radio station employees from across the street. Still feeling the urge from the summer program, he put together a demo tape through a friend's pirate radio station and submitted it. The tape netted him an internship and later his own show. A career in radio was born. In 1985, Trunk's life changed again when he met John Zazula, a record store owner who was starting his own label with a couple of unknown bands named Metallica and Anthrax. Trunk would be instrumental in getting these bands radio exposure and wound up joining Johnny Z at Megaforce Records, becoming the label's vice president at only 25 years of age. While at Megaforce, Eddie was instrumental in bringing former KISS guitarist Ace Fraley back into the music world with the formation of Fraley's Comet. Other bands on the label's roster included Raven, Manowar, Overkill, and King's X. After a stint in music management, Trunk continued building his radio resume with gigs at stations in the New York area, playing and interviewing many legendary rock and metal artists. From 2001 to 2005, Eddie was the featured male host for VH1 Classic, interviewing music luminaries for various specials as well as the popular Hangin' With series. Among the many in-television satellite radio ventures over the past 10 years, most of the world has come to know Eddie Trunk from his hosting duties on VH1's That Metal Show, considered the premier talk show for all things hard rock and heavy metal. With the release of his new book, Eddie Trunk's Essential Hard Rock and Heavy Metal and the popularity of That Metal Show, there seems to be plenty on the horizon for Eddie Trunk. This is our conversation. Enjoy. 
I'd like to go back in time when you know before this because you have I you know going through your bio you have quite an interesting history I wanted to get your thoughts on it because um, I read on your bio about how you were uh, introduced to radio through this program that a college brought to your high school and then you wound up getting a job at, at the record store across from DHA in New Jersey and uh, making tapes uh, at a pirate radio station to turn into them yeah. here's a guy who's worked for everything he's got you know no doubt about that it's a it's a yeah. fascinating start um the, when you got that rate that job at the record store across from the station were you were you aiming to get a, a job in radio at that point mm, yeah pretty much mm -hmm. i mean the radio station was literally across the street and the owners would come in a lot of times and buy albums and talk to us about music and they would also, you know, they, they, you know, we, people forget, but, you know, I mean, CDs were brand new at the time, mm -hmm. uh, a few years after that. And, you know, just the idea of having a CD was such a big deal, having an album on CD. So a lot of times they'd come in whenever an album would be released on CD and want to buy it because they, the, the owner at the time of that radio station was very into the technology and emerging technologies, which CDs were at the time. So he was all about, uh, you know, coming in and learning what the newest stuff was and what he could buy for his station. So, you know, I would always angle and beat him up to say, hey, man, you know, you've got to let me come over there. You, there's a lot of music that we're selling here that you're missing yeah. and uh, you're you're not playing for people. And, you know, he, he, had, he was somewhat receptive to it. But, of course, you know, at that point I was 17, 18 year old kid and, you know, he just took chalked it up as me wanting to hear some of my favorite bands on the radio right mm -hmm. so i needed to find a way to because since they really had you know no radio experience beyond a quick second while i was in high school i had to find a way to show him that i could do it and that's when the owner of the record store revealed to me that he had a uh, a pirate radio station <laughs> in his basement nice. and i was like i didn't even really know what that meant mm -hmm. and uh, one night i went over there and he pulled up a sheet and underneath was a little console and a microphone and a transmitter was somewhere in his backyard and nice. he said you know we can't do this all the time because we can get caught because it's technically illegal but i i turn this on and do some radio shows and sometimes people stumble across the signal and hear it and i'm like you're kidding me he's like no he goes but at least you can kind of make a tape and you can do a pseudo radio show and show them what you would sound like mm -hmm. so uh I said, sure. So I did that a couple times, and we edited up this really professional-sounding tape that was, you know, much better than I actually was on the air because we just did it to, you know, I, I did a lot of smoke and mirrors with the equipment, doing it over and over again just to get it to a point where sure. I thought it would appeal to the guy. Mm -hmm. And then that was kind of the catalyst to say, okay, you know, this, you know, I think that the guy, when I submitted the tape, was pretty aware that there was, you know, it, it didn't come from a real radio station, but at least I think he saw the initiative and the commitment to try to do it and figured he'd give me a shot. Yeah, so I mean, that's how it really started. showed the guy how much you wanted it. You know, anybody can appreciate that. You know, you work hard. Yeah, I mean, to... it was just, but, you know, I tell people all the time, and this is the real truth of it, it, it was very much driven by the passion of, it wasn't, it was, ne you know, I never got into any of this stuff that, you know, back then. It was never about even, you know, trying to make money. It was never about trying to be recognized or be known. It was just really always about the fact that as a kid, I was so frustrated. This music I loved, I didn't hear anywhere. Mm 
Yeah. And I said, you know, I've got, if they're not going to play it, you know, let me play it. Let me find a way to introduce this stuff and share it with other people. Mm-hmm. That's what it was always about, and it's really still about today. The big difference is, is I'm not a kid anymore, and I've got a family, and I need to support, and obviously it is my career now, and it is how I make a living. So the financial end of it is obviously important because, um, you know, I need to support a family and survive. It's what I do for a living. Back then, though, you know, and it's still driven, listen, I mean, it's still driven by the fact that I love these bands and I love what I'm doing. But right. It, it has obviously become a job and a career at this point. But back then, it was just purely about, you're not going to pay me. I don't care. I just <laughs> want to come up there and be able to play these records for people. And quite honestly, I mean, to prove that point, I actually did not get paid. I worked at that radio station for two years before I got paid a cent. Yeah. It was just kind of a glorified uh, intern, if you will, where I would just, you know, wasn't really going to any school, but I would just come up there and, uh, you know, be kind of like the, the station gopher and every once in a while get a chance to crack the mic and go on the air. Right. So that's really how it was. And I didn't, I never actually got on their books. I was, I was pretty well known personality at the radio station for about two years without even working there, uh, <laughs> technically. And right. then finally they said, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you a shift and let you do the show that you want to do. Yeah. And, That's you, awesome. and, and yeah, it mentions how you, you, uh, had pushed for a, a rock and metal specific show on the, on the station. And, um, how big of, how big of a pushback did you get on, on that when you were, when you approached them with that? Um, pretty significant for a while. Uh, that was before I was actually in the door with it. I, what had happened was, you know, they, they were just, you know, they, they didn't know what was going on. And I tell people this all the time. It's kind of hard to understand this now, but that this is about 1983. Mm-hmm. It's a long time ago. And this genre of music, you know, heavy metal in general was very much an emerging thing back then. Right. It was not looked upon. It was not the established sort of niche genre of music. So back then, you know, Metallica had just released Kill 'Em All, mm-hmm. and people just, for the first time, heard really what, you know, really heard thrash. Uh, and then at the same time, you had bands like Quiet Riot releasing Metal Health. You had Def Leppard starting to really break with Pyromania just coming out. So you have to put it into context. Those, you know, those albums now are almost considered mainstream. And, yeah. and are mainstream to a degree, especially... You know, Dust like classic, yeah, classic records nowadays. But back then, those bands were not anything close to the name they are now, mm-hmm. and they were very much new bands tr- trying to get airplay before those albums broke. Mm-hmm. And they were very much considered heavy metal records um, that these radio stations didn't know what to do with. So for me... I would just tell them, hey, you know, you've got to be playing these records because we're having a lot of people come in and buy them, and you're not playing them. And they would kind of follow that trend, and they'd realize that I'd be saying this stuff all the time. And sure enough, you know, they'd start to see these albums start to pop up on sales charts and stuff, and they put two and two together and like, hey, you know, maybe this kid is on to something. Um, so that's when they finally caved in and said, okay, you know, come on up and do – you know, go ahead and do your thing, and, and we'll see what happens. And the other thing, because, listen, radio is a business and, and, and all that, um, the other thing that was really important was that the record store I worked for at the time told the radio station they would sponsor 
the show. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, radio is big business, and if you have a sponsor, especially for a smaller local station like DHA was, that's going to underwrite the show in the sense that you know they're going to buy advertising in every show and be the, the name sponsor. Yeah. It was really a good package for them. They really couldn't lose. But one of the things that a lot of people don't know that was really frustrating for me back then was I, I had the concept. I, put, I got the show on the air. I did it myself for a couple weeks. And then I was replaced, and I actually no. became a behind-the-scenes guy on the show, only kind of cracking the mic and giving some news reports because they, they had a woman there that really didn't know anything about the music or care about the music, but she was a DJ who was a part-time DJ, and she wanted more hours and more work. And mm. she made a huge stink when this unknown kid came in mm. and started doing a three-hour, four-hour <laughs> shift. And all she looked at it as, somebody's on the air and got a shift over me, and I've been here for however long. Right. right. The whole so seniority thing. No recognition of what was even going to on. her to say, okay, well, she's going to kind of host the show, and you just tell her what to play and say. Mm. And that went on for a long time, actually, and it was very, very frustrating. Yeah, that stinks. I would, I'd sit there behind the scenes, and I'd have to bite my tongue, and I'd have to listen to her kind of mispronounce the names of bands and stumble <laughs> through stuff and... It just, you know, it was, it, I really, you know, really had to kind of, you know, pay my dues in that respect at a whole other time. So that went on um, about two years? Yeah, that went on for a while, wow. actually. And, and then I got frustrated and I kind of walked away from it. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do this unless I'm out front on it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I couldn't understand where she was coming from, but I was kind of like, you know, I've got to, uh, you know, I've got to um, do other things then. You know, I can't, I can't just keep. I can't keep operating like this. And, right. You know, it's I, tough I just to have feel a, good about it. Have you know? a vision. So I, I just, you know? I, I got to a point where I would just record a weekly five-minute segment of music news, mm-hmm. which I called metal news, and that was it. And then until I actually got the show back, which was a number of years, there was a point where that's all I had to do with it. But the desire to do radio was always there. I knew one day it would come back to me mm-hmm. because I knew she was just doing it for. You know, for a radio gig, she wasn't doing it for the passion of any love of that music, and I knew eventually that would, you know, come around. Well, and and, and uh, one thing that a lot of people definitely know about you is your love of Kiss, which we definitely share that love. And um, yeah. for uh, for I don't know if you know about this, but for the last couple of years, every now and then these pictures pop up on Kiss message boards. Um, these pictures of Peter Chris doing a show at a place called the Cherry Croft in Newton, New Jersey, in 1984, and you are in these in a couple of these pictures. Do you yeah, remember, do you remember this show? I do very well. Was that yeah. your first meeting with Peter? Yeah. yeah. That's when I was working at DHA too. And uh, Peter was recently out of the band at the time. And he had, uh, he was, the, the other guy, the, the, uh, depending upon what pictures you're looking at, because I know who's putting those pictures up, it's actually a good friend of mine. Oh, okay. He had those shots, and he was posting them on Facebook and stuff, mm-hmm. so they started to circulate. I actually tweeted one out the other day, because I just found one, and I, I got a kick out of it. But mm-hmm. the, the depending upon which shot it is, there's certain pictures that are just me and Peter and a few friends, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's... Uh, a couple shots that also have Stan Penridge right. in them. And Stan, you know, was the guy who co-wrote Beth and yeah. was a good friend of Peter's back then. I think he's since passed away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But this was just a few years after Peter left Kiss, and we had found out, I think Stan lived in New Jersey, and we had found out that this little bar in, 
tavern place in New Jersey was going to have a jam that Stan Penridge was going to play uh, and that the, that word got out that Peter Chris was going to play drums. Mm-hmm. And we had, you know, we're kids at that point and huge Kiss fans and nobody really knew what Peter was up to. It was, you know, three, four years after he was out of the band and we we're like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, you know, nobody really knew about this thing. So we all got in our car and we kind of kept it quiet because we figured if we told a lot of people, I mean, it was literally a little restaurant mm-hmm. where like, you know, this is going to get, you know, it's going to get out of hand and yeah. Peter doesn't show or whatever. So we all, you know, just me and three or three or four friends got in the car and went up there and sure enough, you know, we walk in and people having a drink at the bar or whatever, having dinner and <laughs> there in the corner is Peter and Stan doing a, a set. Wow. That's a surreal it idea. Was, it was completely crazy. And we, we, uh, what was really crazy too is the few people that were in there actually didn't even know who it was, Peter Chris. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, it was wow. just, you know, it was just completely anonymous. It could have just been any, any duo doing a set. Right. So That's we, amazing. you know, we went up to him and during the breaks and we started talking. And if anybody has ever met Peter, he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's really a fun guy to talk to. And he, he's, he's really um, got a great um, sense of humor and loves to chat and loves to connect when he's in the right mood with, you know, and, and he was that night. And we had a great time. And we hung out there that whole night. Uh, you know, we yell out requests and he'd play them and goof around and wow. we'd have some, you know, tr- some drinks with him during breaks and then we took those pictures that you saw and it was really a pretty memorable night. And then mm-hmm. what happened was afterwards, Peter ended up coming to, we, we invite, I told Peter that at that point I had just started working at this radio station in New Jersey and he said he was going to be around for the next couple days. So I said, well, you know, if we can get it approved, I'd love for you to come up and do an interview. Because, again, nobody had heard from him. He'd laid very low since Kiss sure. went away from him. And I went into the radio station, and I told one of the DJs there, and she just took it upon herself, because I didn't have my own show at that point, but she took it upon herself to ask Peter to come to and walk in on her show. Mm-hmm. And she really didn't clear it in advance with the program director, but Peter showed up the next day. I'll never forget, he came in with his wife, who at the time was Deborah, I think. Yeah. Who was the swimsuit girl, mm-hmm. the cover, the... Coppertone. Coppertone girl. <laughs> and nice. they had their kid, which I guess would be Peter's oldest daughter, mm-hmm. who at the time was, you know, a, a baby. And they just showed up, and Peter went in and did this interview, which was fine, but he they didn't get it cleared, and the radio station owner went kind of nuts about it. Um, and now the one thing I'll never forget, and I tell Peter this all the time, is that I remember that the, his daughter was was crawling at this point, literally through the radio station, and we had these pa- these boxes of stuff that had come in with all those little styrofoam uh, packing things, yeah. and she had gotten into them, and they were strewn all over the hallway and throughout the <laughs> lobby, which made the owner even mad. But it's just so funny of all the stupid little things that you remember yeah. about uh, something from back then. That's the one thing I remember. And of course, now I think she's a married woman with kids of her own, which is, you know, shows how much time has passed. Absolutely. But yeah. It was a really memorable night, and I'm glad my friend took those pictures because uh, I got a kick out of seeing them again. Yeah, it's definitely cool. it's definitely a snapshot of a moment. Rubbing our last two brain cells together. <laughs> This is a Decibel Geek Podcast. Oh, oh, yes.
proud to be one of David Lee Roth's favorite podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's always running to get the next episode. Oh, God! Oh, God, I'm running! Oh, yeah! He wouldn't lie to you. God damn it, baby, no, I ain't lying to you. I'm only gonna tell you one time. Oh, yeah! So, be like Diamond Dave and listen to the Decibel Geek Podcast. Hi, this is Marilyn Manson, surgically removed rib, and you're listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast. Not long after that is when you, you met Johnny Z at uh, Rock and Roll Heaven and when Megaforce got started up. Now, when you st- and I know you started playing stuff like Metallica and Anthrax for them. Is the, I mean, how uh, I'm thinking you were probably one of the first pe- pers- people to mainstream play some of this stuff at the time. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I tell a story in my book in the Metallica chapter about that exact night and exactly what happened, but yeah, I mean, uh, I had gone to Johnny had a, you know before he had Megaforce, he, or around the same time in the early days. He also had a a uh, flea market record store with a lot of imports and stuff, and I was a regular customer in there, and I'd go talk to him and buy a lot of imports and emerging bands from him. And uh, he he then I started doing my metal show on the radio, which was really one of the first, if if not the first, you know, kind of specialty metal show on commercial radio. Mm-hmm. And he that, that got on his radar very quickly. So he ended up uh, coming and, you know, kind of talking to me and then start giving me records and saying, hey, if you could just play this, get the word out, I think this is really cool. And if I liked it, I did play it. Mm-hmm. So that's how he and I developed the relationship really early on. And then he had this, this uh, band you know, the, his band Metallica that he was trying to get any exposure for. It was such an extreme style of music that nobody would really give him a shot with it at that time. Yeah. So he came time. up to the radio station one night in the middle of the night when I was on the air and just brought this album. And he says, listen, you, you can just do me a favor and just you know, play something from this album. remember the song was Jumping the Fire. It just anything just to help get the word out about this band. I can't find anybody that'll play it. He said, I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, if I can ever get this thing going and I can build a record company, you know, I'd love to have you come work for me someday. And I'm like, well, listen, you know, whatever happens with that happens with that. But I said, you know, I'll give it a shot. So I put it on the air. We played it while he was standing there. And then he left the vinyl copy with me. He left. He scribbled on the vinyl copy of the album. Something like, I have it somewhere, something like, Eddie, you were the first, thank you, or something like that. That's cool. And, and then he left, and I, you know, I'll be honest with you, as I say in my book, I, I'm not going to lie and say I heard the future of music and I immediately loved it. It was, <laughs> to my ears, kind of much more extreme than anything I was into at the time. Sure. But I thought it was worth taking a shot at, and uh, you know, kind of followed the band's career from there, and as the career went through the roof, Johnny made good on his word, and I ended up going to work for him a few years later. Yeah, you ended up becoming the vice president at only 25 years old. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, that was really, you know, but but to be honest, um, 
it was easier for Johnny and Megaforce to hand out titles than it was to hand out money. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, instead of giving raises, he was big on increasing your title without the money to match. Oh, okay. And, uh, <laughs> you know, again, I'm a kid at this point. I'm right. 23, 24, whatever it is, and I'm just happy to be in the game. And mm. I was still living at home and just starting to move out or whatever. So my overhead was low, and I, I just, um, you know, I was happy to be a part of this, this label. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I started out doing – I mean, listen, the company at its height for me was maybe seven, eight employees total. Um, I was really the the second person he hired. He had a woman uh, by the name of Metal Maria who was like his publicist. She was there because she was also, I think, his babysitter at one point. So that, mm-hmm. it was right. a very family operation. I mean, literally. I mean, my when I first started working for him in that company – um, I worked on the floor of his living room of my office. Um, and then as the company grew and Metallica took off and went to Electra, but he got a big payout for that. Mm-hmm. Then we actually, there was a proper office and everybody had offices. And I actually was responsible not only for helping bring in some bands, but also to actually bring in a lot of the employees. Mm-hmm. So it was a great experience. I mean, it was about three and a half years all total, uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun and it, it brought a lot of different, um, you know, things into my world. It was a whole different end of the business as opposed to being the out front guy. I was a behind the scenes guy and I really enjoyed it. And I, I, some aspects of it I miss and some aspects of it I still do to help out bands. Like I love doing A&R work and the creative stuff. So Mm -hmm. I still do that. Um, actually for a lot of, a lot of times I get, you know, called into that sort of work, not as a proper job, but just to help bands out and give some feedback and say, Hey, this, this is good, or this production, or you should use this mix guy, or whatever. Right on. Um, I really enjoyed that sort of stuff, and when some really well-known bands now that I have become close with, you know, have kind of sounded stuff off of me over the years uh, ever since. So, obviously, the music business has changed tremendously since back then, but, you know, it was pretty cool in my mid-20s to, you know, be up there. We were distributed by Atlantic Records, so I would take meetings with Atlantic and, you know, their top executives, and it was uh you know it was, it was really a really cool experience and it was during this period that uh that ace comes into the picture with uh Fraley's comet and um i don't know if you've seen this i being a kiss nerd i we trade dvds and vhs and all this so have you seen these home movies of uh that ace took in the on the london trip to hammersmith in 87 mm, i've not only seen them i probably shot some of them you actually did because there's some shots of um somebody's filming the marquee out at the front of the Hammersmith, and then I can hear your voice when you go backstage going, I shot the marquee, I got all the shots of the marquee. And I was like, that's Eddie Trunk. And there's that, yeah, you're, you're actually yeah. on one scene in the lobby when Ace comes down from his room. Yep. <laughs> I haven't watched that stuff in a long time. I have copies of it somewhere on VHS myself. I remember the trip. I remember maybe my second, it was maybe my second or third time ever going to England. And, and I was there working with Ace and Megaforce, which, you know, was Ace was really my my project for Megaforce. Was I was I was going to ask you about that. So at this point, you know, you're you're still pretty much a young kid. You become an executive at Megaforce. And now is it get, does it get to the point for you is like now here's my chance to help, you know, help Ace Fraley be able to put out some new music or, you know, was it something you reached out to him for? Or is it how did did how did that all go down? Well, I was, as you said, uh, you know, grew up a huge Kiss fan, and I knew that Ace was knocking around out there, and he was, again, pretty reclusive. Nobody had seen or heard from him. 
uh, most people didn't even see him without without makeup. I mean, there was really right. not a lot out there, even of him out of his costume. Um, so I, you know, as a fan, I always had a great interest of, you know, where is Ace or what, you know, Ace could really be doing something great now. Right. He's still such a fan base. But the thing that changed is that one of the things I said to Johnny when he hired me, I've always liked heavy music, but I also always liked rock and hard rock music as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I said to Johnny when he hired me is he said, listen, you've got a lot of really heavy music here. You know, you've got Metallica, you've got Anthrax, you've got Overkill, you've got uh, Manowar, you've got Raven, you've got all these bands. I said, it's all well and good. I said, but I'd like to see this company grow and expand and, and get some more you know, hard rock type acts that maybe could actually have a shot at getting some real radio airplay and sell a ton of records. And he's like, well, what do you have in mind? And I told him, and he knew from me going in the store that I was a big Kiss fan. I said, listen, I don't know where he is or what he's doing, but I said, I know Ace Freely's out there. Yeah. And I said, uh, you know, there's obviously a ton of stories about Ace, at, even at this point, about <laughs> drinking drugs, what kind of shape he was in. Sure. Um, you know, everything going on. I said, I don't know what kind of shape he's in. I said, we should find him, and if he's in decent shape, we should try to see about making a deal with him uh, to, to do a solo record, because I said, KISS fans will really want to want to hear this. For sure. So uh, he said to me, you know, he goes, go ahead and see what you can find out. And we actually tracked him down through Eddie Kramer, the producer. Um, Eddie mixed the Anthrax album, Among the Living, mm. and had just started to kind of do some work for the Megaforce family, and then Eddie had a line to Ace and said he was going to start doing some demos with him. And they said, well, of course, we want to hear those demos. And we did. And then we went and, you know, we said, asked Eddie how he was doing, you know, health-wise. And he seemed to be okay at that time. Uh, not great, but okay. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, we went and we met Ace. I'll never forget. We had a lunch in New York. Get where it was. Remember Ace ordered the tuna sandwich? You know, <laughs> remember the stupid, weird details? But, uh, <laughs> And uh, we sat there, and, you know, I had to play it very cool because there was a side of me that was, you know... Freaking out. You know, yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. Major kiss fan. <clears throat> I'm sitting here having lunch with Ace, but I had to very it's a much business play lunch. Be professional, and this is, you know, this is the guy we're trying to sign. And Johnny Z was not a KISS fan, right. ever, never <laughs> a KISS fan. Uh, he was never into it. He didn't really know or understand anything about KISS. So he really leaned on me throughout the whole process, and I was really the guy pushing and saying, we got to do this. So he let me take the lead on it, and um, we ended up obviously signing him. That's what started my relationship with Ace, which I'm happy to say to this day, we're still close friends, and I talked to him you know, almost, you know, at least a couple times a month, if not more. And, um, you know, it came to my wedding 10 years ago. I mean, we, we you know, we've, we've shared some great moments. I mean, we've, I've seen the ups and downs, and uh, I'm, I'm extremely, of all the years I've known him, which is over 25, I'm extremely proud of who he is the last four or five years. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I've seen everything uh, in my time and uh, with him, and he is uh, – changed man for the better and i'm really really happy that he's been able to finally have the light go off in his life and mm -hmm. and be the you know be sober and healthy the way he is now so i've been told i got nine lives or maybe even ten now i changed my ways my soul's restored 
I'm better now than then. We're just a little below. I, I, you know, whatever he does musically, how active he is, I, I really, as a fan, that's, you know, of course I'd love to see it, but for me it's mostly, mostly happy. I, you know, if he doesn't do anything musically again, which I'm not saying he's not, I'm just saying mm-hmm. how, however active right. he is, it's up to him. I'm just happy on a personal level that he's healthy and, and doing well. Sure, and it's and great to see the records, As far as the records we made back then, mm-hmm. the first album was real good. Um, the second album was a debacle. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the third album was really good, but I think, you know, very overlooked because the yeah. second sighting was such a debacle. Well, I always people trouble ask me walking why second was good. sighting was a debacle, and it's just simply because Ace was really in bad, a bad time, bad health, not mm-hmm. sober, couldn't even get him to come into the studio. Todd Howarth had to basically take over the record. Um, Ace is barely on the record. Yeah, the songs are, are the songs are not good. The cover is awful. Yeah, um, because we just needed to rush something out because he was he was about to go on tour with Iron Maiden, and mm-hmm. all the label wanted was an album. They didn't care if it was good, bad, or whatever. Mm-hmm. They slapped a picture that they licensed from NASA on the cover, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know we got when Ace didn't show up, they just continued the record with Todd doing everything. And pumped it out, and it just was not, you know, outside of the one or two songs, it was just not a good record. Yeah, yeah. in Kiss, Kiss fan circles, we've always referred to it as the unofficial Todd Howard solo album. So yeah, more or less. And listen, Todd's a talented guy, oh, and Todd sure. bailed us out because Todd was, uh, you know, again, somebody needed to step up and write the songs and 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 do that. And I mean, yeah, very much was that. I mean, he certainly plays on a good part of it, and he's, he, you know, he has half the tracks or whatever, but. Most of the songs are not good, and uh, performances were not great. And I just, you know, if you read Ace's book, uh, he really glosses over a huge part of that that period. Yeah, right. Um, and I could do a whole book just on that period myself because I lived it, and I was never impaired because I've never had issues like that. But mm-hmm. you know, when I talk to Ace about it, he, you know, he did that because, quite honestly, he just doesn't remember it. Yeah. Um, he alludes to the fact in his book that he was that was a bad bad time for him and it was and the one story in his book about the fish sandwich story yeah i read that that was funny out, <laughs> i wrote that for him in his book the book was all, his book was almost put to bed and he said i ran it, i talked to him he said hey you got any stories for me and i said well, guys, come on, <laughs> you want <laughs> i just said i just said, i don't know i could tell you which one do you want you want fish sandwich you look at me what are you talking about and i told him he goes oh my god man you gotta write that for me so that's how that ended up getting wow. the book. but trust me there's a million oh, yeah sure. i can imagine i can imagine well on behalf of all the ace Frehley fans you know i'd like to say thank you for you know originally reaching out to him in a time where who knew you know what would have happened you know it was just you know like at the time it was before internet like you said, nobody's seen him without his makeup on. Nobody knew what he was up to other than the, you know, something out of a newspaper once in a while saying he was getting in some trouble. But then all of a sudden, you know, Fraley's comic came out. And for me as a kid, you know, that was huge, you know, because I was such a big Ace Fraley fan. And it was amazing that this guy was coming out with new music. So thank you. Well, listen, thank you. I mean, I, I for me, it was just, uh, again, a labor of love. It was more selfish than anything. I mean, I, I, bet. I wanted the world. I wanted the world to to obviously, you know, hear from Ace again. And I, I, he was always one of my favorite members of the band. Uh, it was a big thrill as a kid to be working with him, um, to go to England with him, to you know, to work on some of his stuff. And uh, you know, it was great. I mean, it was great. I mean, it's funny we're talking. About, I was mentioning Second Sighting before. 
I'm actually I actually have an executive producer credit on that album. Oh yeah, and it's just, it's <laughs> funny because the album is just is awful, and I, people say like, well, you you have a producer credit on it. I was like, I know, but I can still tell you it was awful because <laughs> you know my producing at that point was to just get the record out. Right. Yeah. You know, all they cared about was the record coming out. I mean, Atlantic just needed a record. They didn't care who was on it or how it appeared. So. That's you know I did work I worked more on that album than anything else but it was not still I can still look at it and say it wasn't it wasn't a great album right. Listen to the Decibel Geek podcast on your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, and WebOS phones with Stitcher. Stitcher's smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at Stitcher.com. Stitcher smart radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Exactly. The only podcast that goes to 11. One loud. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast. You listed as one of your most proud accomplishments was this New York Steel show that you put together after 9-11. Um, describe for me... Basically, because I'm, I'm assuming you were in that area when all of the, when 9/11 happened, um, describe to me your perspective on when that happened, what you were going through, and how quickly this uh, this show came together that you did with Ace Overkill, Twisted Sister, and Anthrax, and Sebastian Bach. The uh, I was actually on vacation in Las Vegas. Oh, you were. Okay. Uh, yeah, on 9/11 when when 9/11 happened, I was actually scheduled to fly back from Las Vegas that day. Oh. Wow. I was in. I was there on vacation with some friends, and uh, so I was not here. You know, and it made it even harder because I was so far away, and you know, obviously my family and everybody was back here, mm-hmm. um, trying to sit to figure out what the heck was going on, and it was obviously a scary, uh, confusing time for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was tough. I mean, I was stuck in Vegas for about seven days more. I was supposed mm-hmm. to come back that day, but then when all the air was grounded and everything i had no choice but to just sit it out out there until they started flying again mm-hmm. so uh that's you know that's where i physically was on 9-11 but um when i did finally get back home you know i was doing this i was doing this radio show again the same radio show we talked about at the top of this conversation that i started back in the early 80s is still the same show i do now mm-hmm. uh every friday on the uh, on c104 out of new york and it's also on the web, and it's also through affiliates and all that. But it's, just, it's everything I've done. It's just an extension of that show. And um, I, you know, I got back here, and finally, you know, after the station resumed normal programming, um, I started getting back into music, and then I started to see things that really bothered me because uh, there was a list of songs that came out that it was said these songs are you know, shouldn't be played right now because yeah. times are too sensitive. And I was, was working on radio at that time, too. I remember that list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really absurd to me. I found that really offensive that someone would tell people, you know, music should be an escape for no matter what kind of music you're into. And, you know, who is, who is anybody to tell you that this should and shouldn't be played? You know, you should play what's going to make you feel better. Sure, right. And, uh, a lot of the EMS workers um, and the cops and the firefighters uh, all listened to my show. They were among the first people who listened to my show when it finally went on in New York City, which was back in '94. And they they uh, 
they were huge fans of this music and my show. They worked off hours. They worked at night when my show was on. I mean, they were, they, some of them had become friends, and I was like, you know, I'm going to play this stuff. I don't care what anybody says. So yeah. I did, and I, I, I stayed true to what I do. And then, you know, there were a lot of benefits being announced. The the big one at, the, at Madison Square Garden in New mm-hmm. York, I think Billy Joel was behind. And listen, I mean, all credit to those guys. That's huge stuff and for a good cause and all that. But I was, again, I mean, I've always fought against the stereotypes of this music and the mm-hmm. perceptions of this music. So I said, well, I'm going to put, you know, there needs to be something for the rockers. There needs to be something for these EMT guys that don't want to hear Billy Joel play piano, yeah. man, that want to hear <laughs> some rock. Right, absolutely. So uh, I started putting the gears in motion as to what I could possibly do along those lines. And it was hard because uh, nobody was coming to New York for anything recreational at that point, unless it was major. Mm-hmm. People were still afraid to hang out in New York for a long time. Um, you know, I, I, the World Trade Center is still you know, burning. I mean, it, so it was it was rough. And promoters were skeptical about it. And I said, well, you know, I kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And there was a promotion arm, promo, uh, promoter, local promoter, um, Metropolitan Entertainment at the time, who had had this relatively new venue called Hammerstein Ballroom, which is still there today and now very established. But mm-hmm. back then it was a new venue. And a, a, a few months before 9-11, they had shown it to me and said, hey, if you ever get any ideas and want to do something, let us know. So here was the idea. So I took it to them, and they were really a big key in making it happen. They were great. They gave me the venue uh, for the charity, and we laid it all out. And then I put together, I said, well, I got to put together some bands, and I wanted it to all be New York bands, not only because it was a 9-11 benefit, but I also wanted it to, I didn't want to have to start flying people in and putting them up, right? because then that destroys your budget and your ability to make money for the charity. Mm-hmm. It's always astonishing to me when, I'm, when I hear about charities and I've heard that people are paid a ton of money and they're flown in and put up first class and this and that, and it doesn't really seem like how can it truly be charitable then? Because, right, because you're still you know, getting paid for it. You know, yeah, a charitable I mean, listen, act is something do you don't get in return. Yeah, I understand that you do a charity event and you don't want to come out of pocket and you're, you're donating your time and your services. That's one thing. But mm-hmm. when you you do a charity event and, you, you know, you start having agents and stuff negotiate huge fees for you, then you're mm-hmm. not really – I don't really see it as being charity. You're really doing a gig, which right. is fine, but it's just – it destroys the, the ability to raise money for the charity. So I tried to avoid all that by putting that lineup together. So I just went to people that were longtime friends, like Overkill, um, Anthrax. I talked to Skid Row at that point about trying to do a reunion. Oh, that would have been something. <laughs> and I thought that would have been a really, you know, they were New Jersey-based, obviously. They were all friends growing up. I yeah. That would be a great opportunity to do it. That didn't work out. Um so I went to Sebastian was doing uh, Rocky Horror, I think, on Broadway at the time. Yeah, I remember that. So I, I called him and I said, "Listen, you know, I'm doing this thing," and it was just very much like that. And then I called the Anthrax guys, and basically everybody was like, "We're in, you know, it's New York. We're all New York. Let's go do it." Yeah. So I I submitted this bill of Anthrax, Overkill, Sebastian, and. Um, and Ace, I had a, I spoke to Ace, and Ace was like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it. Mm-hmm. 
So I had that, that as the four, and I took it to the promoter, the Metropolitan, and they said, listen, um, in a normal world, this would be a great bill, but we're not in a normal world right now. Right. And we need, these are all bands that are active and play and are around and accessible. We need something that uh, is going to push this over the top. Mm-hmm. So they said, go back to the drawing board, find a, you know, a big hook at the top of the bill. What can you do? So put my thinking cap back on and, you know, for 13 years, Twisted Sister were hating each other and sniping at each other. And all the members of that band would come into my radio show to promote solo projects. Right. right. And I, I called J.J. French and I said, listen, you know, you're a New York band. Um, Mark Mendoza works, uh, I think, for the, the state troopers on Long Island. I mean, you know, those guys are very, very much do great things for the troops and stuff. And over the years, I said, listen. In New York band, if you're ever going to bury the hatchet here and you're looking for a reason to really bury it and you know go play some music again, this is it. And I laid it out to him. He said, well, it won't be easy, but let me go back and see if I could pull the guys together and tell them. Mm-hmm. So a few days later, I got a call from JJ, and he said, uh, he said we're going to do it. Nice. So, so then they had to go through their process, which was not easy. Of, uh, and they just put out a DVD of their performance, um, and and a documentary is on it about what they personally went through to get together for New York Steel. Mm-hmm. But they they went through a lot of healing and getting getting it together to do what at the time was going to be a one time performance and the first show they did in 13 years, and. Since they've played consistently ever since for ten years now, right? Um, not, not on a real big touring level, but they play. You know, they play probably twenty, thirty shows a year around the world. Right. So th- that was really the catalyst that relaunched that band and had them still going today. And that's kind of where it all started. So it was a great ad- event. We raised about two hundred thousand uh, after all the expenses were backed out. We gave it to the police, um, widows, police and firefighters, widows and orphans fund, and. Um, a good friend of mine, uh, baseball star Mike Piazza, hosted it with me, and he was playing for the Mets at the time. So it had a great New York flavor. I remember VH1 did a special from it. Um, this was, of course, before I was working for them. So it was, it was really, uh, it was really, like I said, for me um, to have been able to put something like that together on the strength of really one three-hour-a-week radio show, mm-hmm. and have the artist community and the fans respond like they did. And to be able to put a positive face on this music was right. something I'm really proud of. Right. And that, that is awesome, Eddie. That's really awesome. You know, and you're right, because people look at heavy metal as, you know, oh, that's a long hair, you know, dirty, bad people listen to metal, you know, lowest common denominator. But then, you know, you've got guys like you, you know, putting stuff like this together. You know, it's it's the same, you know, it, you're like our champion almost. You you champion our cause, just like we try to do here on the Decibel Geek Podcast you know, do some intelligent talk and, you know, talk about hard rock and metal and introduce new bands and try to keep it going, you know, but it started with you, you know, you're the one that really, you know, because of your love of the music, you know, and that's, that's what makes it great is because it came from a really pure place and how you've been able to parlay that into this long career of being able to do all these amazing things. And, you know, it never strays away from 
you know, hey, it's not about me, Eddie Trunk. It's about hard rock and heavy metal music. And, you know, we thank you for it. You know, it's it's been amazing, all the things you've done. Well, listen, I mean, I, I really appreciate you saying that. I, I, I don't, it's funny, I don't, unless I'm doing an interview like this where we're talking about that stuff in those days, it really doesn't really hit me about the, the things I've done, because I'm always just moving forward. I'm always right. thinking, of, okay, what's what's next week? What's next month? What's next year? You know, what can I do? And I'm always thinking about uh, uh, the one thing, the one real thing I'm, that I, I look at as a good quality is I'm not complacent at all. I mean, I could have been like, you know, fine about, oh, I'm doing a radio show. I'm good with that. But I always, right. I'm always looking for ways to to build either of the radio shows always looking for ways to do more. I mean, you know, uh, people say now uh, you've got you know, two you know, two radio shows, an FM show, a satellite show, you've got a book, you've got a TV show, you know, you've got to be pretty set. I'm like, no. I, I mean, I honestly, I, I don't say that selfishly, but I don't think I've even scratched the surface. You know, right. on the TV side, I, I wish we were on every day of the week. I'd love to do Monday to Friday live. I'd That'd be awesome. Do, you know, I'd love to be the David Letterman of rock music. I mean, I, I, I've no, you know, I, I've got more goals. I mean, I'd love the radio show to be on better hours, more stations, more yeah. days. I mean, it's, it's all, you know, it's all what you make of it. And I've, I've been told no to everything I've ever tried to do from the very first day as a kid coming out of high school that I wanted to do radio. I was told, well, you're not really set up for it. You, you really don't have the voice for it. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love being told no. Um, <laughs> to, to this day, you know, I don't have an agent. I don't have a manager. I don't have, you know, I, I, I have no, you know, I have people that help me from time to time when I need it. But, I mean, I, I don't, it's not like that. I mean, I just uh, get out there, get my hands dirty, uh, do my best to find opportunities and hope things, you know, come my way and good things come my way. But it's all driven just not only building what I'm doing, but in turn, I look at it as a way to build access and exposure for these bands. And you know, when I hear people like you say that, it, it means a lot. I mean, I, I've been in this game now coming up on 30 years, but I don't feel like I've even, you know, I've, I feel like I've got so much more I want to do and and hope to be able to do. But it's nice when, you know, you know people, I run into people or meet people or do interviews with people that really appreciate it because um i never really take a beat to say yeah you know I, I you know obviously big big things like you know when i got on tv when i got the new york steel show going when i got my radio show going you know those are big kind of landmark things getting the record company jobs but yeah. you know when you got fans and then you get artists like you know four years ago judas priest plays a private show for me to say thank you for their for supporting them yeah or the late ronnie james dio you know you know, all the things he's been on the record that he said about me is just, it's really staggering to me because at the end of the day, I just think of myself as a fan. You know, I was one of the early people that got uh, VH1 Classic, and I remember watching you on the Hanging With show, and it's just it was just unbelievable. And I remember telling my wife at the time, I was like, this guy has my dream job. <laughs> I was just like, because I was like, can you imagine going to work every day? Oh, I'm going to interview so-and-so today. And then this other hero of mine, I mean, that must have been surreal, you know, not, you know, going in each day, you know, getting an interview with all these legendary people that you probably grew up listening to. Well, it was. Uh, the, the good thing about it is even at that point, when I first got that gig in, in 0203 for, for v, with VH1 Classic doing the, that show, um, even at that point, I had had a good ten years of radio under my belt. 
Mm-hmm. So I, a lot of any of the, a lot of the rock guys I knew, or mm-hmm. they knew me because they had come and done my show. Right. Um, the, the challenge was that was all styles of music. Uh, that was everything from Aretha Franklin to alternative acts to Carly Simon. I'd interviewed her in Martha's Vineyard at her house. Wow. Uh, John Mellencamp. I mean, it was the gamut of styles of music. Mm-hmm. And I had to do all of it. And even though, you know, do I wasn't you, a fan. Do you get of, excited about an interview with, like, Carly Simon or somebody? I mean, knowing that you're a metal fan through and through, I mean, is it still fun to interview somebody that you're yeah. may, maybe oh, not yeah. so much into? I, I really uh, did enjoy it, and I'll tell you, I miss it. Um, I, 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 really, I really miss that because those are artists I don't know, and it's fun to learn with the audience. And that those are the things that I have to really kind of do my homework on. Right. Um, and those are the things I'm really proud of having been able to done as well, because, you know, you could put me in front of any rock act and I could just do it in two seconds without right. even looking at a piece of paper or prep or anything, because it's what I do. I, I, I don't, when I do that metal show, I, I mean, I can tell you it's kind of a running joke on the set because the producers make these big binders with all these prep materials and bios and, you know, we've just done 10 seasons. I've never opened one of them. Yeah, and I bet. They, I bet. They, they laugh because they're like, you really, you know, they, they need to do it for other people on the set and everything. But it's like, you know, I'm like, guys, save the paper. And it's not <laughs> trying to be arrogant. It's just no, that right. I've lived it. I've, I, I don't, for, for these guys, I don't need that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but in when I would sit down with Carly Simon at her house in Martha's Vineyard, yeah, I know you're so vain or whatever, but you know what? I'm going to brush up a little bit. So you, you come at it from a different perspective, and the one thing I've always been good at is talking, and I can talk circles around anybody, as I'm sure you can figure out. <laughs> We're enjoying you know, it. Listen, man, it's like, uh, you know, let's go do it. I mean, I can talk. Even if I don't have the prep material, I can get anybody talking. So let's sure. go do it. It's, it's one of the things I'm probably, you know, it's probably my biggest strength. So I really enjoyed uh, doing that stuff, and, I'll tell you something a lot of people don't know. Um, I did not want that metal show to be purely a metal show. Really? Um, I I fought the name of the show. Really? And Yeah, because I wanted the show, I certainly wanted it to be rock and metal, but Mm. I wanted it to be, I I was worried about having the word metal in the title painting us into a corner. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I can see that. And and it, it has to some degree, but what's happened is, um, you know, cause we've been on now for so long, people, I think have realized that regardless of the name of the show, we're, we're going to be a rock show and a metal show. Right, and I right. say it at the top of every episode, yes, your, your yes, place of rock and metal, because VH1 loved the name. It was their idea to call it that metal show. And listen, I mean, how to get on the air. So whatever they needed to call it, sure. right. I just want to do it. Yeah. Um, but you know, I want, you know, we just last season had Paul Rogers on, I mean, uh-huh. that's not a guy that streams metal but hugely influential. So we're going to, you know, uh, somebody pointed out to me the other day, VH1 stands for Video Hits 1. Mm-hmm. Well, there's not a lot of video on there. No. <laughs> you know, not a, not a lot of video hits on there anymore. ESPN is, you know, what does that stand for? So uh, MTV you know, we're, even, where's gonna, the music? We're going to just kind of evolve as best we can. And, you know, there'd be some people that might squeak about it, the metal purists, but it has to be, you know, more than just, you know, one one thing. I'm not saying we're having Carly Simon on TV. <laughs> right. I'm just saying. But you, but you could interview her if you did. What's that? <laughs> but you could easily interview her if you did. 
sure. I'd ask her <laughs> if she ever heard Faster Pussycat. That was gonna, <laughs> I was going to ask you if you asked her that. That's a pretty good I version of that. Because it wasn't, it wasn't right at the time, but if she came on, on TMS, I would. Or you, yeah. could, you could get her to come on and do a duet with Faster Pussycat. You never know. There you go. That'd be cool. <laughs> Well, and you've got see, that. That's also that's also the hugest difference. If you see old stuff I did on VH1 Classic versus that metal show, mm -hmm. the hugest difference I can beyond the way it's shot and who I'm talking to is me and, and how I'm doing the interview. And what I mean by that is that that was a completely different structure doing that that hanging hanging with show. I was completely dictated to by a producer as to how I was to act, what I was to say, how I was to say it, how it was to be presented. Wow. Um, so it was not, some of it is me, and some of it I ad-lib and go off the grid a little bit, but it was a hell of a lot more structured than what you see now on TMS, which truly is me and is completely the opposite, where there is no uh, structure as far as you can only ask this or you can't ask that or... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I want to know what you're going to talk about. It is just, you know, and it shows. Go so do what you do. Right. It definitely shows when you watch it too to tell you guys, you know, are you're having a good time doing what you're doing, and that conveys to the audience. I mean, I think it makes the audience enjoy it that much more. Well, we're friends. I mean, uh, Don and Jim are friends. Uh, I brought them into the show. Uh, they they were uh, listeners of my radio show. They're both stand-up comics. We we are friends. We talk about music all the time. We used to go to shows all the time together. And uh, when this, you know, it came around that they wanted to inject some, you know, different life into this show and create some ball busting and have some, you know, have some different dynamic. I said, well, I got just the guys. So mm -hmm. they they came in and brought them up to the network, introduced them to those to the network, and we shot the pilot and. You know, here we are. So it, what you see is very real and very natural. There's nothing calculated about it at all. The arguments we get into are arguments we get into, and you know, it's never malicious. We still right. we're, we're friends, so we can get we can we can break each other's chops. Well, and I like the looseness of the show and the looseness of the talk on the show. But um, I did see the 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 Axel Rose interview you did this past year. And you know, and and you're the only one that really seems to be able to get him to do interviews. Um, I gotta wonder though, is was was there like a no ask list on certain questions with him on that on that uh, episode? Because it, it it just we, I wonder if there was just like restrictions that you were put under. Well, we were. Well, here's the deal, um, and it's come up a couple of times. There's a few things with that. Mm -hmm. We were first of all, I'm, I'm think, I think it's well documented now, and I just wrote an article in Classic Rock about it. Uh, you know, we were. It's not an excuse, but we were literally up for nearly 24 hours. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, you get an interview of that that magnitude. I prefer to be a lot sharper um, <laughs> and a lot more on my game than than that. I was literally sleeping seconds before he walked in. And you guys, and you guys just showed up for that too. There, this wasn't really scheduled ahead of time, right? It was loosely scheduled. That we were not given a guarantee it was going to happen. It was just, hey, if you're there and he, he, you know, he sees Eddie or he he, he gets the vibe, maybe we'll get him to come over, and that was it. Mm -hmm. um, so it was all a big gamble. So we didn't know if he was going to show up, when he was going to show up, and we didn't. We certainly didn't expect it to be there for nearly 24 hours. Um, but that's not the fault. I have to make that clear. That's not the fault of Axel. Again, he right. was not. He made no commitments about this thing. It, mm -hmm. You know, we waited it out, and we ended up getting it. So there was that. And the, the other thing about the whole thing with the, the Axel interview is that 
it was very much the, the reason he did it and really what it was about was was mainly to promote that tour mm-hmm. that he was on and that band, you know, this band that he has now. Right. So the only real restriction we were asked uh, about from his team was that we did not go into the old stuff and reunions and, you know, this and that. And, you know, what about a reunion and what about Slash and all that? Because they wanted, number one, they thought it would be disrespectful to the current band sure. and, and, and also defeating to to the point of why he was doing it, which is, you know, he that that was shown at the early stages of what was a run of tours, tour dates in America. And if you, you know, the guy's trying to sell a tour and sell a new band, mm-hmm. and if the entire interview is talking about appetite, it doesn't really serve a purpose of, you know, what he was trying to do, which is establish this lineup of Guns N' Roses. I suppose by so asking... I can understand yeah. where he was coming from, and we did our best, but, you know, he actually brought up the old days a number of times. So we did the best we could, mm-hmm. considering the circumstances. Uh, in a perfect world, I'd love to be one-on-one with the guy for two hours, you know, rested and ready to go, right. and really get into some stuff. But at that point, we were just kind of, you know, getting the best we could out of it. Right. Okay. Well, you know, and that was the first interview on TV in what ten years. So I'd say it was worth it. If, if not longer. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to be. You know, you've got to. Everybody knows that Axel's a interesting guy and can be a volatile <laughs> guy. And if you, you know, I had the same experience with him five years ago on the radio show. If you put him in a comfort zone, he'll hang out and he'll get relaxed, talk to you as long as you want him to. But. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you if he senses things going in a direction he doesn't like, you know, then you might have gotten a two minute interview there, and he would have gotten up and walked out. Right. Yeah. So, so we it's it's a balancing act. It really is. But I can say this for the record now, having interviewed him on radio and TV, mm-hmm. uh, once he gets out there and sits down with you, he's a lot of fun to talk to. He's a regular guy. That's the biggest response I've gotten from that interview is people saying, yeah, that you know, I've heard from people like, I wish you would ask this or you know, mm-hmm. let yeah, him off the hook on something. I get all that, and I, I you know, I'll. I'll but people have to understand what the circumstances involved and uh, some of the some of the way we were working and, and the things we were dealing with there. Right. Um, but but I mean, you know, I can say that once he gets rolling, he's great. Yeah. And so we've got the uh, the new the new uh, season of that metal show coming up. Is it next month that it's starting up? We start taping it next month. Oh, it will air, I believe. I think the first one airs the very the last Saturday of March. Is there is there any clues you're gonna drop about possible guests? Uh, no. I actually have a call in a couple hours from now to solidify the lineup. So maybe in a in a few days we'll be able to release it. Oh, okay, cool. Um, but we've got about eighty percent probably booked. A, a huge part of my involvement in the show beyond what I do on camera is behind the scenes and working with the network on getting guests on the hook and. It's uh, it's a it's a it's a process. It's pretty time consuming, and um, sometimes it's easier than other times. But only because the way we work, we do two shows a day, so we work for a week and we're done with the whole season. Mm-hmm. And if the artists are on tour or something like that, it's hard to get them when we need them. Um, but we we've got a, a great roster uh, this time around. I think the past few seasons have been really strong. We've had some amazing people like Brian Johnson and Lars Ulrich and Tony Iommi. And the only thing I can say is that we're going to continue the evolution of the show and, uh, branching out in some different areas in rock and metal. And we're also going to continue to have back, uh, guests 
I mean, people ask sometimes, like, well, you know, sometimes half of the season are people that have been on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have been. But what's the problem? I mean, any talk show you watch on TV has guests back after sure. three or six months. Absolutely. You know? uh, these guys' stories change, things develop, and we're an established show now. So, uh, of course, certain artists are going to come back, some some sooner than others, depending upon the, how big they are or what they've got going on. So it will be a mix of returning guests and first-timers. And um, I'm excited to make the announcement, which I hope to be able to do very soon because um, there's there's one, one band. We've had a few, just a very few handful of bands that have eluded us for one reason or another. And there's one band that we're finally a mega band in this genre of music that we're finally going to get a member of on. So Nice. Uh, that's going to be that's going to be exciting to uh, a lot of fans of that band. Well, we look forward to that new season, just like always. We all love the metal show. You know, between you know the TV work, the behind the scenes, the radio shows, the appearances, the tracking down Guns and Roses. Where does a guy like Eddie Trunk find time to write a book? Hmm. <laughs> uh, in the gaps between all those things, you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I I I. Uh, the book, the book was something that was a lot of fun, but a lot more work than I ever thought it was going to be, mm-hmm. um, and very time-consuming. And I, I enjoyed the process, and I'm really happy with the end result. Um, it's done extremely well, and um, people are still just discovering it and buying it, and the, the feedback has been amazingly positive to it, which I'm, I'm really happy about. But yeah, it was a lot of work. Um, my publisher, though, did a great job in assisting in that work and doing the layout and dealing with the photos and the graphics and the, the look of it and all that. I mean, that was all on them. They, they did an amazing job in that regard. But as far as getting those words out on paper and in print, um, it was a process. And uh, something I did some of on my own and a lot of with a, a woman named Andrea Bussell who's credited on the book as well, who really was, uh, when my hands were falling off at the typewriter, at the, at the, well, not the typewriter, the computer, of course, um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a good typer. I'm not a trained typist. Yeah. So I really started to just, you know, burn out on it. And I said, listen, I need somebody that I can actually talk to about this and who could do this part of it and help me shape this stuff. So that's where she came in and she was really invaluable in that. So it ended up being very, very, very long phone conversations for a while with her. Uh, going through the text so it's uh it's been great and they are talking to me about you know that they've asked me about doing the second one and a lot of fans have asked me about doing yeah, the second one and I bet. sequel and i certainly want to um and maybe we'll even start on it sometime this year but i need to make sure that before i do that mentally i'm ready to tackle it and that uh i have the time to do it and there was times doing the, the book that I had to stop for a, a few weeks because I have to go shoot the TV show and I really just I, my focus needs to be where it is so I, I, I couldn't be worried about doing chapters when I was there so right. it's just you know, I need to clear out a good stretch of you know okay here's a month let's get right to it and I can pretty much knock it out Awesome. Well, the new book is, it's called Essential Hard Rock and Heavy, Heavy Metal, Eddie Trunk's book. If, you know, fans of the Decibel Geek podcast, I know we're all fans of hard rock and heavy metal. That's a must-have for your uh, library. Put it on your bookshelf. Let everybody know. People have asked about getting signed copies of the book, and um, you can buy the book anywhere uh, you can buy books, uh, bookstores, Amazon, whatever. 
But if you want signed copies that I personalize and ship right out, uh, there's a there's a tab right on the homepage of my website. You can you can uh, mail away, and I, I'll send one out for you signed. So so there's that. And the, the last thing, if I could just mention, is mm-hmm. uh, the website eddytrunk.com, and the uh, my Twitter is at eddytrunk. And people are always asking me about how do they get into tapings of that metal show. Mm-hmm. How do they keep up with what's going on with the show? Who's coming on? Who the guests are? Uh, you know, getting getting to be in the studio audience, all that. The biggest thing I can tell you is if you follow on Twitter, you'll get the information immediately because as soon as I get it, I pump it out. Awesome. And, th- and this man does tweet, and he tweets often. <laughs> yeah, listen, man, I got into Twitter. I was never yeah. a big Facebook guy. I, I kind of I, I have a Facebook. It kind of mirrors whatever I put up on Twitter. Mm-hmm. The, the Twitter mirrors over there. Um, I am not computer savvy at all. I'm terrible with it. <laughs> I'm terrible with, you know, I, 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 so, so, and then there's this social media overload where it's like, you know, you log into Facebook and there's, oh my God, there's 20,000 people that are trying to ask you a question or, or, or <laughs> want to talk to you about something. It just, it becomes daunting and you realize you just spent your whole day in front of a computer answering emails and Facebooks and, yeah. and that. And, you know, you didn't really do anything that you had to do. So uh, the one thing I've learned, about, the one thing I really love about Twitter is that I, I, it's a real connect with, with the audience. It's real easy. It's real instant. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll take as much time as I can in clusters throughout the day if I'm answering some questions where I can. Um, and, you know, just try to, you know, I, I use it. You know, people, people love some of the personal stuff. Sometimes people just want the music stuff. Sometimes people don't. You know, you know, don't care about the sports stuff that I'm into. But, you know, my thing about it is, listen, I mean, it, it's a personal thing. It, you're going to get a little of everything, and it's me. It's what's going on with me. So if you follow, that's what you're getting. <laughs> and I also put a fair dose of, you know, content and things that I'm hearing about tours and, you know, real music news that I hear along the wire that I can share also. So it's a mix of a lot of things, and uh, it's become a fun kind of little community that I built there. Awesome. And well, I want to get a thank you again for coming on and we'll be sure to put uh, links up in the show notes on our website for uh, all your for your Twitter and for uh, the links to get to the book and the many, many endeavors, many endeavors. And then uh, we'll be well, looking for that metal show coming up soon. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for having me on and uh, and best of luck to what you guys are doing and uh, appreciate the support. Broadcasting live from Lenny's Mole, you're listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast. Eddie Trunks talked to everybody in hard rock and heavy metal at some point, and as we found out, you know, some other interesting interviews that he's had to do that's really kind of out of his genre of interest, but, you know, the guy's a professional, and it's it's cool, man. It was very awesome talking to Eddie Trunk. One thing I forgot to ask him was, how did it feel to be uh, immortalized in an Overkill song? You ever heard uh, the song Old School? No, I haven't. It's, uh, you ought to check that out. That's a really cool song by Overkill. It's kind of a punk rock tune, but they pay homage to Johnny Z and Eddie Trunk, and it's kind of like... The history of Overkill wrapped up into a song. It's really awesome. <laughs> Good old Bobby Blitz. Yeah, called uh, Old School. Yeah, check that I'll song check out. Check that out. Make, but for all things Eddie Trunk, if you want to pick up his new book and find out what he's going up to, what he's up to, uh, all the stuff for that metal show, well, obviously for that metal show, vh1classic.com. Also, and for anything Eddie Trunk is eddietrunk.com. Awesome website. Che- highly recommend you check that out. Lots of good stuff there. And of course, check out our links, www.dbgeekshow.blogspot.com. Check out our Facebook at facebook.com slash decibelgeek, Twitter at decibelgeekpod, and all that good stuff. We'll uh, have some YouTube videos up for you soon on that, that page. 
So hang in there, folks. Aaron, yeah. any last words? Um, I think, you know, a couple of the last few weeks we've been alluding to doing this video or this interview and promised that there were some big things in the works. And I like to feel like we delivered the goods. So once again, you know, we're here. We're the Decibel Geek Podcast. We're here spreading the love for all our hard rock and heavy metal brothers and sisters. And uh, we're delivering the goods, baby. So stay tuned because we got even more big stuff, stuff coming up. And uh, we promised this was going to be big, and it was. So when I tell you we got more big things in store, you know I'm not lying. We got it under control. Right, Chris? That'll work. All right. See That's you next it. week.